Good morning. How's everybody? Good. You're alive. You have coffee. You're good to go. I'm glad. It's good to be here. It's, um, as I said last night, or Gijer had said last night, I have been, we've been friends about 19 years. Uh, that's a good long time. And uh, it's amazing to see what God has done here at Higher Vision. How many of you, this is your home church? Awesome. Great, great, great. So I get a chance to talk to the home crowd primarily. They're getting me a podium, which will help. Um, good. Thank you. Oh, a table. That'll work. Uh, there are products in the back. I'm not a great salesman of my own product um, because I just give it away. But uh, it's back there, and my office would appreciate me mentioning it. Uh, the newest CD I have out there is called Now is the Time. We did some things off of it last night, uh, followed by, we, had a, we have a worship conference every year. It's called Encounter. And uh, so you'll see a lot of CDs out there called Encounter. Everything Encounter, including this new CD, is all live. So it's a lot of fun. It's a little crazy. Uh, it's not real calculated. It's off the page. So if you like crazy, uh, it'll get you down the freeway, I promise you. It's, pr it's pretty happy. So find all those back there. I think you'll enjoy them. Uh, how many brought your Bible? Okay, good. You brought your iPad that has your Bible on it. I don't have much time today, so I really want to get right to what I want to talk about. Um, bear with me a little while because uh, a lot of people, uh, I'm going to prop this up on product. That's a good use of product right there. Look at that. That's cool. All right. Turn to um, Philippians 3, 2, Philippians 3, 2. I'm so honored to be here, and uh, this, this is called The Well this week. So I started to ask myself, how in the world do I speak to people about The Well? What do I need to talk to them about? So I'm going to talk to you just a few minutes about going hard after God, and I'm going to talk to you about holy dissatisfaction. Here's a fact. Most of us in this room have as much of God as we want right now. The reason we don't have more is because we don't realize, either we don't realize there's more or we're not pursuing him for more. We're happy with what we have. It's, it's amazing how we get in the house of grace and we get so caught up in the goodness of the Lord that he picked us up out of the pit and put us on the rock and gave us a promise and a future. That is pretty amazing. But when you get so caught up in that, you forget that this house of grace that you walked into, the grace and the forgiveness is only the foyer. And this is a really big house. There are things about God that you can explore and get to know. There are places in the Lord that you can go that no one in your family has ever experienced. There are experiences with God that you can have. So I want to talk to you, and I'm going to stay close to my notes, so don't get offended if I do, because uh, I try to make sure I put a lot of Scripture in. Are you there with me? Yes. Philippians 3.2. Look out for the dogs. <laughs> Love that. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship God by the Spirit of God and the glory of Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Uh -huh. Wow! I've got it together. Paul is saying this. But whatever gain, now, you see all that? He just got through telling you as to the law and the flesh, as to doing the right religious thing, I had it together. I did all the religious ritual. I did everything 
perfect. I mean, who can make that claim? That, the law is practically impossible to live. And here is a man going, I got it all down. I did it perfectly. And then he takes all of that perfection and bundles it up in verse 7 and says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of what? The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For the sake, for whose sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him not having righteousness of my own which comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and it depends on faith that I may all of this that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in death that by any means possible I may obtain the resurrection from the dead not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect now you see this now he just got through saying as to the law I'm perfect but now I'm in Christ and I see a bigger picture than what I used to see there's more rooms to the house not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press to make it my own. Everybody say press. Press to make it my own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think, any of you think otherwise, God will reveal it to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Now, now, my favorite book in the whole world, my favorite book, is The Pursuit of God, written by A.W. Tozer in 1948. I have it in my iPad. Before the iPad, I have it in my briefcase. I carry it everywhere. Besides the Bible, I carry the pursuit of God. When you become a member at Grace Church Nashville, I give you a copy of the pursuit of God. Uh, I just, I've not found a book I like any better. So if I'm going to talk about going after God, I have to quote a little bit of A.W. Tozer. If you have never read the book, read the book. It's amazing. A.W. Tozer's little book, The Pursuit of God, it has a chapter entitled, Following Hard After God. I think it's more relevant today than it was in 1948 when it was written. After showing how Moses and David and Paul and all the great hymn writers were ever, ever thirsting for more of God, Tozer writes this. Listen closely. How tragic that we, in this dark day, have all of our seeking done for us by our teachers. Everything is made to center upon the initial act of accepting Christ, and we are not expected thereafter to crave any further revelation of God to our souls. We have been snared in the coils of the superlious logic which insists that if we found him, we need not seek him anymore. And this is set before us as the last word in orthodoxy. And it's taken for granted that no Bible-taught Christian would ever think otherwise. So the whole testimony of the worshiping, seeking, singing church on this subject is set aside as irrelevant. The, experiment, the experiential heart theology of a grand army of, fa of fragrant saints is rejected in a smug interpretation of Scripture that would have certainly seemed strange to St. Augustine and Bernard. So Tozer rejected the false logic that says, if I found God, I don't need to seek Him anymore. I want to say today that I reject that too. When you give your heart to Christ, 
I don't use the phrase, make him Lord of your life. You don't make God anything. He chose you. He found you. He picked you up. Isn't that awesome? God chose me. What a jerk I am. But he loves me. And he chose me. I love that. <laughs> to have found God and still seek him is the soul's paradox of love. It's scorned too easily by the satisfied religionist, but it's justified by those of us who heart, whose hearts burn for him. One of the old hymns that St. Bernard sang many, many decades ago, it said this, We taste thee, O living bread, and long to feast upon thee still. We drink thee, thou fountainhead, and, our, and thirst our souls from thee to fill. Matthew Henry, the great commentary, says, wherever there is true grace, there's a desire for more grace. When Paul said, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 5.18, his aim was to make God-aholics out of all believers. So the evidence is that you have, if you have God, you want more. How do I know I'm a Christian? You want more of them. That's why you're at the well on Saturday morning when you could be doing something of leisure. But you're here today because you want more. And this is the evidence that you know him. See, continued indifference to growth in grace is the sign of no grace. I want to persuade you that the pursuit of God is not optional, even after conversion. And I want to give you practical help in the performance of this pursuit. So I'm going to give you four reasons why we must go hard after God. Four reasons. It's not an option. First, why do I insist we must go after God? Why must we go hard after Christ? There are six reasons given in this Philippians passage that I read in 3, 7 through 14, but I'm only going to mention four. The first two answer the question of why by referring to the future rewards of the pursuit. And the last two answer the question why? By referring to past causes of the pursuit. So, number one, why must I pursue God? It's pretty much a no-brainer in order to know him. Let me give you a phrase in the Bible that you can live by. I, I have certain little slogans. Do you have those? You, if you don't, you need them. I'm serious. When your brain's not working, you can remember slogans. There are certain days my brain doesn't work. I have to shake my head and try to find it, okay? One of them is not very godly, but I live by it. You deserve what you tolerate. I have a slogan, thou shalt not whine. So whatever you put up with, shut up. Or change it. Right? I love to know the Lord and go after him, to chase him. <laughs> Verse 7, look at it. Whatever I call gain, I now call it loss for the sake of the Christ, that I may, that I count everything as loss. Because of this, the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ, my Lord. This is coming from a man who did the law perfect. Not us. This is coming from, we're struggling to even figure this out. 
And this is a guy who goes, I've got it figured out. And I have done the law perfectly. But then one day, I came into contact with Christ Jesus himself. And he transformed my life. And after that transformation, I suddenly realized that all of my law keeping was rubbish. And now I'm on this pursuit of knowing him. One of the phrases I want you to latch on to and take home with you is this. It's out of the Bible. It says this real simply. First, the natural, then the supernatural. Say it with me. First, the natural, then the supernatural. You got it? So what that means is everything in the natural has a supernatural counterpart. So you didn't get married just to have a mate. You got married so you could learn how to treat God. Let me talk to this keyboard because you don't want to hear that. Because in order to have a marriage that works, there has to be a cultivation of each person on the part of the opposite person. You have to create an atmosphere for your mate to grow. I didn't marry who I could live with, who I could, couldn't live without. I married the girl that I had a desire to make her life better. And I wanted to create an atmosphere for her to blossom into whom, whoever God made her to be. Now, in that kind of a marriage, there's flaws, but they're overcome by this surpassing greatness of wanting the atmosphere to create fertility for that person to grow. If that's true with me and my wife, then it has to be true with me and my God. So therefore, worship becomes the atmosphere of fertility for me to know Him more and to go deeper. You didn't have children because you were trying to procreate and make your name go on. You had children from God's vantage point so you could see how much He loves you. You have no idea how much God loves you until you hold that ugly little newborn. I'm serious. When our first one was born, he was born into my hands, and I thought he wasn't done yet. I was like, <laughs> face was all mashed, pointed head. I thought, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in my 50s, so I was thinking Saturday Night Live coneheads. I was just, I was going, what an ugly little being. And then the second thought was, I love this ugly little being. And there is nothing in the world I wouldn't do for this ugly little being. And when I held him in my hands the first time, I heard God say, now I'm going to show you how much I love you. And there's lots of scripture that thread this. The scripture says, if you are evil, know how to give good things to your children who ask you. How much more? Will the Heavenly Father. <laughs> That's why I smile when I worship and I can't prune face. Because I know what a jerk I am. But he loves me. And I'm his. <laughs> and I'm going to be alright if you don't like me. So notice verse 7 says past tense, probably referring to the conversion. He said, I counted. Paul says, I counted what was back there all lost. But then in verse 8, are y'all in the Bible with me? All right, y'all quit smoking and let's look at this, okay? Look at verse 8. It's present tense. He says, I continue to renounce everything that hinders me from knowing Christ. Why? Because knowing Christ is the value that surpasses everything else. The evidence of conversion is whether you become a person who goes after God or not. A follower of Christ will always go after what has the highest value. A follower of Christ will sell everything joyfully, according to the scripture in Matthew 13, 44 and 45. 
they will sell everything joyfully buried in a field, treasure, in order to go after the pearl of great price. That's what the scripture says. And they do not want to know Christ. If we don't want to know Christ, it's an insult to his value. We're living in a time where the Bible calls it the spirit of Antichrist. It is in the atmosphere. People are saying, I had a crisis of faith. I don't believe anymore. I believe this. I believe that. And you have no evidence. I never descend into arguments with people like that. Because I've had enough past experiences with God of my own. There is no way I can doubt him. There is no way I can doubt him. And you must pull the past forward to remember the goodness of God. Otherwise, in the days ahead, when the spirit of Antichrist becomes so thick in the atmosphere, you'll start to doubt your faith, wonder if it's God, wonder if it's emotion. They ramp you up on Sunday. It may not be God. It could be God. That's why Paul says, I press and I grab what's behind and I bring it with me. Look at this. Paul prays for us in Ephesians 3, 18. I do a lot of scripture. I, a lot of preachers just do a lot of bull and throw a few scriptures in to make the point. I start with the scripture because there's nothing I can say that's going to change you. It's the scriptures, the word of God, the true word of God that will change you. Okay? So look. Write them down. Please write them down. Don't consider me a false prophet. <laughs> Ephesians 3, 18 and 19. Paul prays for his, and he says, that we might have power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. All you smart britches. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. There is so much of Christ yet to be known. God has the, the deck stacked. You do know that. He requires faith. And he calls faith in his word the substance. He calls it a real thing. But it's a real thing that hangs on the hook of hope. And hope is not tangible, but the substance that hangs on it is. Why does God do that? Because he's not cheap. God is not a cheap date. And he is not your doormat. God is a person. And as a person, he can be cultivated and wounded as any person can. Newsflash, huh? Not the dude in the white beard sitting on the throne. Flashing lightning from heaven when you have an evil thought. No, he's a person. The Bible talks about that. Read your Bible. If you'd read your Bible, you'd know this stuff. You'd know that in the Old Testament, he gets angry. Threatens to kill everybody. And somebody says, what a vengeful, hateful God. Well, I don't think so. When you, brought you, when you brought hundreds of thousands of idiots out of bondage, and they can do nothing but gripe about it, and you give them free clothes, and food falls from heaven every day, by the boxcar loads, and the first rock concert happens in the desert because there's a rock following them, Read it, it's in your Bible. And the rock would stop and water would gush out of it. Are you kidding me? And then all they can do is, oh, I hate manna. Could we have Italian manna? How about Mexican manna? Just something with a little zing to it. We're dying out here. And God says, no, you're not. You're living because I'm feeding you. So the place where God gets mad is he comes from Mount Sinai with Moses and they've been out hanging out for several days and, and God says, I'm going to give the people a law and never look at the Ten Commandments as restrictions, please. 
Look at them as freedoms. Thou shalt not. That sounds kind of hateful. Oh, that means I can't. I want to do it. I want to do it. I'm just honest. I mean, yeah. Gossip is so much fun. I actually like to do it. But um, somebody says, why does God say you shouldn't lie? Well, have you ever been around a habitual liar who forgot what the truth is? Oh, what a tangled web we weave. Yeah, it's like they forget the truth. And they have to tell another lie, another lie, another lie. They become such liars, they lose all credibility and nobody trusts them. Nobody has any faith in anything they say. Now, is that freedom or prison? Thou shalt not commit adultery. <laughs> yeah, well, duh. If you got a redhead, she'll come home and kill you with a frying pan. <laughs> this is not a good day. I'm married to a redhead. <laughs> I fear God and Amber. In that order. She's a little woman, but whoo. Woo. Hell hath no fury. See, when a man falls in love, he's driven by this inner compulsion to know the one he loves. First, uh, what? Work with me. I'll be here all day. Work with me. First the natural, then the You know, when I met my wife, I got rid of friends because she didn't like them. Don't look at me, dude. That's why your marriage ain't working. She hates your friends. They were my friends before you were there. Yeah, but you found a pearl of great price now. Y'all don't want to hear this kind of stuff, do you? You really, y'all really have a problem with this, don't you? You know, I mean, seriously, dude, get a different hairdo. If she wants you to have that spiky look, you go for it, baby. Because she's got to look at you. If she's trying to get you in some tight britches, you put them on. them they're confining she likes them stupid and if she likes them guess what happens just saying so when we pursue God first the natural then the supernatural so, so what we do is we start adjusting our lives to whatever he likes and it's not a duty. It's not a chore. It's not a drudgery. Because he's worth more. And he has the best in mind for us. So if God says no on something, he's saying no for a good reason that you don't always know why. But you just go, okay. Rather than, oh, I've been trying to go follow God and man, he's just taking everything away from me. I can't even do anything fun anymore. Try that with your wife. No, when you were pursuing her, dude, you were all about her. You didn't care about nobody else. When a student admires a professor and treasures their wisdom and the student is invited to the, to the professor's home for a class and for personal tutoring, he goes. So the first reason to go after God is to know him. Number two, I'll be quicker with these. I'm going to use a couple of theological terms. I use theology because we have become so dumb in the church about theology. We just need to bring the bar back up. Um, second one is to confirm our justification. We go after God to confirm our justification. Justification refers to this wonderful act in which God forgives all of our sins and imputes to us or imputes to us his righteousness through our faith in Jesus. Does that make sense? That's the simple, it's a deeper subject, but that's the skim, that's the skim top. Justification is this act where God forgives our sins and imputes all of his righteousness to us through the fact that we have faith in him. No, no works involved. 
So start with the second half of verse 8. It says, For this sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as refuse, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, based on law, but that which is through faith in Christ. You see that? The righteousness that comes from God depends on faith. Notice, present tense. I am counting all things. Not I counted, but I am counting. I am forsaking them. I am pursuing Christ. Why? in order that I might gain Christ and share in his righteousness. So what does it mean to gain Christ and share in his righteousness? Paul is a Christian, and he's still straining for this. So surely it means that at least gaining Christ's acceptance when he comes to judge or when we die, to lose Christ would be to lose everything, to gain him, would, to be, would be to enjoy his fellowship forever. So Paul is speaking as a Christian and he's looking into the future. And he's saying, what do I have to do to gain more? What do I, what do I, what do I have to do to press into him and be clothed in his righteousness? I want it. I want more. Just like when we dated that beautiful girl. We wanted more. We wanted more. We wanted more. Handshake wasn't enough. We wanted more. We're pressing. We're pursuing to see her face, to smell her perfume. Made us realize we needed to know her more. We wanted to know her thoughts. We wanted to know her intimately. We wanted to know her loves, her hates. We wanted to be in her atmosphere. Why? Because we had met her. When we meet Christ at salvation, that's the whole idea of the kingdom of God. It's never, oh, I'm saved now. I'm going to be good. I'm all good. <laughs> I'm a Christian now. I go to church. <laughs> Aren't I wonderful? Huh, you just got in the door. And if you think that's good, wait till you go to the kitchen. And if you think the kitchen is good, wait till you go to the bedroom. There's more. He says, I want to be found clothed in the righteousness of God and accepted into heaven. What must he do? What must Paul do? He must pursue Christ. He must count all things lost. Now, wait a minute, Lyndall. You're teaching false doctrine. Isn't justification by faith alone? Yes, it is. Verse 9 is clear that righteousness that Paul pursues is based on faith, but he's pursuing it. Do you see that? Is anybody here? As a Christian, he counts all things lost in order to have this righteousness. You, if you compare the words pursue and obtain in Romans 9.30 and Philippians 3.13, the conclusion is the faith which justifies is a faith which forsakes earthly values and pursues Christ. If justification depends on faith and if forsaking the world as refuse is necessary to having the benefits of justification, then it's plain. Saving faith is not merely a one-time decision. Saving faith is an ongoing preference for Christ over other values. The pursuit of Christ is the evidence of genuine faith. In other words, you'd never pursue Christ unless you knew him. Therefore, we must go hard after God to confirm our justification. Now, number three, why do we go out hard after God? Because we're so imperfect. Except for a few of you. you, you a few of you are here and you're perfect. But the rest of us, these two look not to future rewards like knowing him and justification. These next two in verse 10 and 11 look on to past causes. The first is found in verse 12. Look at it. We must go hard after Christ because we're so imperfect. And he says, not that I've already obtained or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Look at that. We must go hard after Christ because we are deficient in ourselves. A failing student should pursue a special tutor. Nearsighted people should pursue an optometrist. 
people with strep throat should pursue antibiotics. Alcoholics should pursue a support group. Young apprentices should follow a master at his work. Not to go hard after Christ means either you don't trust his power and his willingness to change your imperfections or you want to cling to your imperfections. But in either case, Christ is dishonored. To know him and not pursue him is a great dishonor. And finally, number four, my favorite one. I pursue him because he made us his own. Verse 12 says, not that I've already obtained or I'm already perfect, but I press to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. This sentence explodes the false logic that Tozer is referring to, to which says that if Christ has found us, we don't need to seek him anymore. If he has laid hold of us, we need not to press on to lay hold of him. But Paul reasons exactly the opposite here in the Scripture. He says, I press in order to gain Christ because Christ has already gained me. Paul's conversion was not a cage, listen, to hold him back, but rather a catapult to push him into God further. See, the irresistible grace of Christ overcoming Paul's rebellion and saving him from sin did not make Paul passive. It made him powerful. The best commentary on this subject is Philippians 3.12 is if you go back one chapter, listen to this, chapter 2, Philippians 2, verse 12. Look at this. Work, y'all there? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for God is at work in you. Go hard after Christ because Christ is at work in you. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Hebrews 12, 14, for the Lord is working in you what is pleasing in his sight. See, Listen closely. You'll think I'm preaching false doctrine if you don't. Pastor Wayman needs to hear this especially. <laughs> make sure my theology is correct here. The reason the Bible can make our salvation depend on our pursuit of holiness without turning us into self-reliant legalists who have no assurance of salvation is that it makes our pursuit of holiness depend on the sovereign work of God in our lives. The most fundamental reason why you must go out hard after Christ is because Christ is in you and he's moving you to go hard after him. So let's be practical as I close. Are y'all getting this? Sometimes when I, 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 I kind of straight line, you know, I, I like to be a comedian, but when I straight line scriptures, a lot of times people go, huh? Let me give you three practical Steps to going hard after God. Real simple. Now we turn from why we pursue God to how we pursue Him. Verse 13, all out of the Bible. I stay right with the Bible. Paul says, brethren, I do not consider myself to have made it my own, nor do I regard myself to obtain. But one thing I do. What's the one thing? He didn't say I did 50 things. Somebody says, pursuing God just means i got to do this and that and this and that. I just don't have time for all that. Paul makes it real simple. One thing. I forget what lies behind. Some of you in this room can't get to the deeper places of God because all you can think about is your past. And your imperfections. And Paul says, impossible to go hard after God and coddle your imperfection. You have to forget what's behind and press forward. 
So the day you walked in the doors of higher vision or wherever you accepted Christ, wherever you prayed the prayer, maybe it was in your car, maybe it was in your bedroom, maybe it was in your bathroom, I don't know where it was, but that day that you surrendered your life to Christ and you accepted his forgiveness for your sins, at that point you should forget what's back there. And look forward to this new life in Christ. Because Christ, at the moment of your conversion, put in you the desire to chase him. (laughs) It can't come from you. It has to come from him. So how am I going to do this? Step number one, I must develop a holy dissatisfaction. He says, I don't regard myself to obtain. Paul's pursuit of Christ rises out of a profound dissatisfaction with the way he is. Can I ask you a question that's hard-hitting and maybe offensive, but it's a question. Could it be that there's a connection between how little earnest pursuit of God there is in the church today and how much we're told to think well of ourselves? It's a wonderful thing to have been taken possession of by Christ, but it's a thousand times more wonderful when we realize he has taken possession of a people who are sinful. (laughs) So the first step in going hard after a holy God is to develop a holy dissatisfaction with where your spiritual life is. I didn't say frustration, I mean dissatisfied. Stand in front of the mirror of the Word of God and recognize you haven't arrived. The hearty admission of your spiritual imperfection is a starting point to pursue God. Oh God, I don't like what I see. There must be more. Because God started you, another theological term, on the road of sanctification when you received justification. So, justification means what? God imputes his righteousness to you and counts you as his. Not by your works, but by your faith that he's God and you believe. At that point, you're justified only by faith, never by works. So, justification becomes the foundation of sanctification. Justification is instant. Sanctification is progressive. Just like a good relationship, marriage or friendship is. As you know the person more, you want to know more about them and you want to change to accommodate them. It's never about rules. It's about love. I love the Lord. And I'll, I'll make another thing too. Don't spend a lot of time looking at all your imperfections and, and, and going, oh, oh, what a mess I am. We all know you're a mess. Okay? But do this. Here's what I do. I say, God, let the Holy Spirit search, according to the Scripture, the inward parts of me. And here's what will happen. If you let the Holy Spirit do the searching, He's so awesome. He will only reveal to you the imperfections that you can deal with. He'll never overwhelm you. If you're overwhelmed because of where you are spiritually, that isn't coming from the Lord. And that is not the work of the Holy Spirit. So reject it. Do you all know what conviction is? Do you know what condemnation is? I'll bet you don't. One of the number one questions I get, I, 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 I'm under condemnation. And then I'll, find, I'll listen to their story and I go, no, that's conviction. And the person say, I'm under conviction. No, nope, that's condemnation. It's real simple, real simple. Conviction comes from the Holy Spirit. And what he will do is he will pinpoint one or two things, maybe three at the most, but always just a few. He'll pinpoint In the middle of a worship service, your hands will be up. 
and you'll want to deliver your spirit to the Lord in worship or in prayer, and something inside of you right here will begin to twist and turn, and it will say, you know, you lied to Joe this week. You lied to him. Pinpoint accurate exactly what you did that was offensive to this wonderful lover called the Lord and this resident called the Holy Spirit. He's doing the thing that your wife doesn't do. He's telling you what the problem is. He's not leaving you to guess. What? What did I do? What did I do? You know what you did. <laughs> Girls, we're stupid. You understand that? We're dumb. We're like puppy dogs. Rub us on the belly, feed us a good meal, have sex with us. We're good. Don't think we're as deep as you. We're not even close. So if your husband's dumb as a rock and you think he ought to know, follow the pattern of the Holy Spirit and tell him. The Holy Spirit will always tell you. So he's searching and he's the one bringing up the imperfection and he's the one saying, because I've brought this up, I'm giving you extra grace to deal with this. So it's never overwhelming, it's never impossible, and it's not an insurmountable obstacle. It's always manageable by his power and by the grace of the Lord. Now, con condemnation is different. It's a ball of confusion. It's indefinable. It's everything. You ever been around anybody like that? Oh, it's just everything. Everything's wrong. Everything's wrong. They can't tell you what's wrong. Everything's wrong. That's condemnation. So when you get in the presence of the Lord in prayer or worship and you feel like God is a million miles away and you can't pinpoint what's keeping you from his presence, it's called condemnation. And the scripture is strong on that. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So you run that out of your prayer room and you run that out of your worship time. How do you do that? Start confessing who you are in Christ. I, and to use the scripture, it would be good if y'all read the Bible, it really would. Just use the scripture because if Jesus dealt with the devil with the Bible, then probably you should. I don't know. Just a guess. How do you do that? I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I have been redeemed from the curse of the law. I am a born-again believer. I am a child of the living God. I have asked God for the kingdom, and Jesus said, if I asked for the kingdom, he would give it to me. Boom! Yeah. I got to hurry. I'm almost done. I got two more good reasons. So develop a holy dissatisfaction. Let me pause before I leave this and people say, Lyndall, you're out of touch with real people. People don't need a negative appeal to think more about their guilt. <laughs> The malaise of American culture inside and outside of the church is an epidemic of guilt and bad feelings about ourselves. Don't tell people what they need is more dissatisfaction and negativity. Do you really think people in your church think they're wonderful and they really like themselves? No, I don't. But I do think, and hear this closely, Pastor Wayman, Pastor Ming, hear this well. I do think that God-honoring, humbling guilt is extraordinarily rare. I think 99% of our bad feelings about ourselves is rooted in pride. For example, suppose you go to a dinner party and you're invited. You and your wife show up. You got on shorts and flip-flops. She's got on jeans and a t-shirt. You get to the door. It's a nice house, gated community. You knock on the door and the butler answers. Yeah, and butlers always have a British accent. May I ask who's calling? It's me and my wife. And you're in your flip-flops and she's in her jeans. 
and you're ushered in and you show them your RSVP and you walk in and the place is gorgeous. And you look past the foyer and you see the dining room set with perfect china with 18 forks. <laughs> you look to your right and the Paula has white imported Italian carpet, all wool. You sit down, they offer you something to drink, your wife gets grape juice. I don't know why, but it works in my story. <laughs> you get coffee, and you're clumsy, and you accidentally spill your coffee, and it collides with your wife's grape juice. And yes, it goes on the imported Italian wool carpeting. You apologize. You immediately jump up and start sopping up the mess you've created. You're embarrassed. You sit down at the dinner and you don't know which fork to use. You don't know which spoon to use. And as you're leaving, to add insult to injury, as you're leaving, as you're... <laughs> you realize everybody's got dinner jackets on. Everybody's got cocktail dresses on. I mean, it is a formal occasion. And there you sit in shorts and flip-flops. To add insult to injury, as you're leaving, the hostess sees you to the door. She's gracious. She's polite. And you thank Miss Susan for inviting you, only to be shocked when she says, actually, my name is Joy. You get in the car. You drive home. Your wife and you are venting at what idiots you are for not reading the RSVP and the dress code. How do you feel about yourself when you get home? You feel rotten, don't you? Anybody here? You hate yourself. You're depressed. You don't want to show your face. You feel like quitting your job. You're such a klutz. Now let me ask you, where does that lowest self low self-esteem and low image, self-image come from? Where does that depressing, immobilizing, self-denouncing feelings coming from? The answer is, and is the answer this, is it God's offended glory or your offended pride? People who are depressed and immobilized and angry because their behavior has injured God are very, very rare. But people who are depressed and immobilized and angry because their, their behavior has prevented them from having a reputation of being cool and collected are very, very common. So when I plead with you today to develop a holy dissatisfaction, <laughs> I am not asking you to do something common. I'm asking you to do something very rare. I'm not asking you to feel worse about your inability to, full, to appear cool and intelligent. I'm asking you to feel worse because you possess so little of Christ when there's so much available. Thank you. Number two, forget the things behind. These are our steps. Holy dissatisfaction, forget what's behind. I just got a few minutes. He says, I forget those things behind. I take this to mean that anything in your background that hinders your pursuit of God should be put out of your mind. I don't take this to mean that memory has no place in your spiritual artillery. It does. Some battles are won by remembering the mercies of God. But the point is never look back. So, I'm sorry, the point is not never look back. The point is only look back for the sake of pressing forward. You can write this one down. Never substitute nostalgia for hope. See, memories of success can make you smug and self-satisfied, but memories of failure can make you hopeless and paralyzed in your pursuit of God. So you don't look back like that. But what you do is you give humble thanks for the successes and humble confessions for the failures. And then you turn to the future and go hard after God. Finally, number three, 
strain forward. The final step to going after God is to strain forward. Paul provides his own illustration in 1 Corinthians 9, 25. A lot of scripture, I know. He says every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable. Well, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. Listen, to, this is New Testament. But I pummel my body and subdue it lest by preaching to others I myself should become disqualified. So the way to go hard after God is with the discipline and self-denial of an athlete. I doubt that there's ever been a Christian who's reached the heights and the knowledge and the joy of obedience without a plan. God does not promise riches to aimless people. Paul did not run aimlessly as he beat the air. He had a plan. He made a plan to go after God. He adjusted his life. So in sum up of all this today, develop a holy dissatisfaction and put out of your mind anything of the past which hinders your pursuit and strain forward like an athlete in 2014. As imperfect as we are, it is God who is at work in us. <laughs> we don't run in our own strength. I would give up today if I had to do this by myself. There's a hope in Christ. I love this. And I close with this. Anything God is asking from you, you're capable of giving. And as you walk toward him, there'll be trade-offs. That's why you can't look backwards. There are things in my life that have had to exit my life in my pursuit. And some say, well, that's legalistic. Well, no, that's my convictions that the Lord has given me. That's why they're considered personal convictions. What we do in the church is, is as much as we all hate law, we crave it. We want a list of do's and don'ts. Okay, I'm a part of higher vision now, and uh, here's the things you do, and here's the things you don't do. And then we can argue. But the Holy Spirit works this way. Just like the natural and the supernatural. He knows you. And he knows where the danger spots are in your character. And he will ask you, to back off of certain things for a period of time because they're dangerous for you. Not because he's keeping you from something, but because he's keeping you to something. With that in mind, it's not hard to let go of things. That when people have hurt you, you really want to retaliate, or I do. But sometimes the Holy Spirit will forbid me to retaliate. And he'll go, mm-mm. You're going to let that one go. I'm going, yeah, but I really just want to go take their head off. <laughs> and he goes, no, 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 you're going to let that go. Because I'm working on that and I'm working on you. I'm working on you to trust me. There's an old song we used to sing when I was a kid. And nobody sings it anymore because we don't like either word. But it goes, trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. What's the building block of a male-female relationship in marriage? Trust. No trust, no relationship. What's the building block of your relationship with God? Trust. Not for you to learn to trust him for your own good goodness but for you to learn to trust him because he's a person do you ever think about how we don't trust him like we trust him to an agree and then he fixes our mess how many of y'all were a mess when you came to Christ I mean a real mess oh I love that I love messy people I love jerks and fornicators and liars and just all of it 
That's the kind of people I'm comfortable with. Because all of us who were idiots knew that it was Jesus who changed us and not us. We didn't get religion. We got Jesus. You know, it's like, well, now there's a hope I can do this, right? But God starts you on that path of trusting him. Pursuing him is a parallel road of trusting him. But sometimes when we came to Christ and everything's messed up, and even through our walk with the Lord, we'll come to the altar time and get prayer because things are going rotten and we, oh God, I just made a mess of it. I said this to her and she said this to me and now it's a big mess and it's la la. Untangle my confusion, Lord. And we leave it at the altar and we say, God, you take care of it. And guess what he does? He starts untying all the knots and making it work. And then when it's working... We go, I think I can handle it now, God. We pick it up and take it again. And inevitably, we mess it up again. Then we come back to God and we give it to him. He untakes What is this? This is a proof that we don't trust him to leave it with it. Trust him. Trust him. Thank you for today, for listening to me, and thank you for letting me be here. I hope I've helped you. I hope it's been helpful to you. Thank you.